Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, our daily email newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos will keep you up to date on a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today, as you would be right to expect, from the socially distant Seneca studio here at my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from his own clean room, built with a grant from the National Endowment for Democracy in Dublin, not only as a guest bedroom, but also as a secure comms room from which he sits like a spider at the center of a globe-spanning web, is that ingenious puppet master behind that vast network of hostile foreign forces, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina. How are you, man? Greet the people. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm uh, masterminding many plots against all the revolutionary countries. <laughs> Counter-revolutionary. Um, man, I can't even tell you how nice it is to have you back on the show now more often. Uh, please let this last even once the lockdown is over, okay? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Anyway, 10 days ago, I read a great piece in the New York Review and uh, reached out to the author with whom I was not previously acquainted, but now that we've spoken a few times, I am just delighted to have made her acquaintance. The piece was called Fearing for My Mother in Wuhan, Facing a New Sinophobia in the U.S. So today we're delighted to have the author on our program. Jiwei Xiao Xiao is an associate professor of literature and Chinese language at Fairfield University in Connecticut. She is a prolific film reviewer, and when we get to recommendations, I'm going to insist that she recommends some good Chinese films. Uh, This essay was actually her first piece in the New York Review, but I certainly hope it is not her last. Jiwei, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you, Kaiser and Jeremy, for inviting me to this exciting show. Jiwei, thanks for joining us. Why don't we start with a little bit about your own life, your life in Wuhan. You mentioned in the piece that your mother has lived in the same apartment on campus in Wuhan since your father took a job there in 1981. Yeah. So I guess you grew up in Wuhan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's seemingly a very straightforward question, right? What do you think of the city you are from? But Actually, it's very hard for me to analyze my feelings because it's complicated. And, you know, it also depends on when you ask me. If you ask me like 10 years ago, I would say, I don't really like Wuhan. Wuhan is too hot in summer. It's, you know, it's one of the four ovens um, along the Yangtze River. Yeah. Uh, my, when my father took us to Wuhan, uh, I didn't speak the dialect. So I had really a hard time uh, assimilating, actually. And... You know, Wuhan people have a very rapid fire, that kind of style of talking to each other. So sometimes if you don't know their dialect, you thought that they're, uh, you know, fighting each other. May, may I ask, Jiwei, where, where were you born? 
I was born in Anhui, Hefei. Uh, my father was a professor teaching French literature at Anhui University. Oh wow, interesting. And then you moved to Wuhan. Yeah, and then um, he took this job and moved the whole family uh, to Wuhan. So I was actually not the only child in the family, but I grew up like a single child because all my siblings were much older than me. And you can imagine, I don't have uh, the big sisters and brothers to really teach me how to speak the language and, and mix with each other, uh, uh, you, your classmates um, at schools. So it was hard. And my father was so much older than me. I mean, he was 53 when I was born, to give oh, you wow. a little secret of my family. But, it, you know, uh, the reason why I revealed this be is because, you know, the reason, part of the reason why I, um, I shouldn't say I was motivated, but I wanted to come to the U.S. Uh, was because of my father. So there was lots of reasons there. But we hmm. could talk about that maybe later. Yeah, no. We'll, so yeah. You, you mentioned about Wuhan, how it's it's uh, people there talk very loud. What is that expression? It's like, <laughs> 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 but, but that isn't about talking loudly. That's about Huberan uh, being wise or, or able, oh, you know, smart, right? Yeah, I mean, but it also has this negative connotation. You're very aggressive. And you know, sly you and this, cunning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have this fierceness. Uh, I do feel like you know, because I grew up on this campus, and it's very, you know, in the eighties and nineties, it was so peaceful and quiet. But it's a secluded place. I realized later, you know, uh, you grew up in this quite privileged uh, uh, place where you are exposed to all these, you know, the best uh, that you know Wuhan had basically. But once you get out of the uh, campus, you are faced with the crowd. It was a really a crowded uh, city. That was, uh, you know, my first impression uh, when we first moved to Wuhan. But still, compared to nowadays, uh, the city in the 80s and 90s was, uh, had less traffic, of course. You don't have the car culture. I mean, for me, most of my growing up is in the city that almost seemed sluggish. It was not, huh. you know, highly developed as in recent years. You see this big development in the city. In yeah, almost every I, I haven't way. been back there since. I was back there in the winter of 2008, and I haven't really been back since. Uh, you've gone back almost every year, so it's, it's almost like being able to see the change, like a time-lapse sequence in a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that's I right. In, in your essay, you talked about how, for example, the, the subway kind of is knit together what were three separate cities, Wuchang, Hankou, and Haiyang. Yeah, uh, definitely. But what else What else has, has changed profoundly in Wuhan just across the, the decades since you've been gone? Um, so, you know, the sense uh, that you actually now have a city instead of three cities is really important, right? Yeah. For I people imagine. who are commuting, first of all, and for also uh, just the sense of, the city is entirely different. But I also, I, I mean, in the last few years, uh, several things that struck me is, one is the, the bike sharing program that was really uh, very uh, prosperously uh, being done by many different companies. They 
uh, it's really convenient. I, I, I remember I wish that New York City could adopt that, you know, bike sharing program. They just, you, you just use your phone to scan and you are on the bike. You can go anywhere, uh, anytime, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. What about just things that are peculiar to Wuhan itself, though? I mean, I, I, my, my feeling is like a lot of people in the U.S. who are reading about this city where this outbreak first happened don't kind of have a sense of what the city is like. I mean, if there were a way for you to sketch, you know, what distinguishes Wuhan from so many other cities that most Americans have never even heard of, you know. Yeah. I don't feel like most of the reporting gets to that. Right. I mean, but people already have talked about this, right? Wuhan being this uh, gigantic city in the central part of China, but being unknown to the Westerners. Uh, most people know Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, and maybe a little bit about the uh, city of Hangzhou and Suzhou, all these uh, beautiful touristy cities. But when you talk about Wuhan, where is it? That's the first question I always have to answer. Oh, it's along the Yangtze River. It's in the central part of China. It's also a, a very important city in terms of, I mean, it has a long history, first of all. And it also occupies a place in the uh, even the revolutionary history of China. But for Westerners, yeah. who cares about that? I mean, um I don't know. So October tenth, nineteen eleven, right? The Wuchang uprising, right? Right. Yeah. And they compare yeah. Wuhan to Chicago, but I don't think this comparison is a you know even apt, right? And people talk about how it doesn't have the features, doesn't have the cosmopolitan features. Some people said it's still looking for the identity. So in terms of modern architecture, it doesn't have that. However, I have to say, it has leaks. Uh, many lakes. Right. It has this. Uh, it is a river town. Also, uh, you can see Yangtze River. One of my um, fondest memory about my childhood is my mother took me to take the ferry rides across the Yangtze River. It's a crowded space. People have bikes going to workplaces, commuting across the. Yangtze River, but you can also, I mean, for kids, you can just look at the river and it's its a beautiful scene, actually. So, Jiwei, if we can interrupt this wonderful reverie with a bit of contemporary awfulness, uh, when did you first become aware of uh, COVID-19, of the disease in Wuhan? You know, it's not from any relatives from Wuhan or friends. Um, I still remember I heard about the news actually from my student. I was teaching this class, uh, Chinese uh, language class, and he said he just suddenly, just when we were uh, doing exercises, he suddenly blurted out and said, "Oh, there, there, there is a uh, plague uh, that's going on in China." And I thought, you know, what are you talking about? Uh, this kid must be uh, reading some random stuff online. So we all kind of laughed, laughed it off. And we thought that, you know, he was just like a clown of the class trying to get everybody's attention. When was that? Do you remember? When it's in the mid of January, because okay. that was maybe the second class after school opened. So it's uh, probably 15th or 17th or 18th in that week. 
but I but I remember that. And then the second time I was uh, paying attention to was the this 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 picture of doctors wearing this uh, protective gown. This really kind of scary looking, like people in a chemical warfare. They're they're wearing the the all you know this. How do you say this? The, this the hazmat. The hazmat. Yeah, the hazmat. And the picture was circulating from one WeChat group to another, uh, without even the text. But everybody can kind of uh, guess what's going on. So that was the two scary moments at the beginning. Although we dismissed it, I remember these two, and then things got serious. I know that something happened. Once the municipal, and then the provincial, and then finally the national governments got past their—I mean, so we can fairly call it their initial mishandling of the outbreak. It sounds like from from your piece, you were pretty impressed with the actual capacity of the state to mobilize, and and you write about the neighborhood committees, the the Juwei mm-hmm. these people who, under normal circumstances, as Jeremy is fond of pointing out, can be incredibly bothersome with their nosiness and all their nattering, mm-hmm. uh, and suddenly they become indispensable, uh, just like a totally indispensable part of the response in this kind of a crisis. Uh, what impressed you about the way that China responded after January 20th, after, you know, the lockdown started on January 23rd? Um, hmm. I have, again, I think I have complicated feelings or conflicted feelings about this. Um, the lockdown is not just an inconvenience. It's really, I mean, for... For, for my mother, and I can imagine for other people, it was it was very hard to bear, actually. It's, yeah. it's 70 days, uh, not just 60 days. And um, whenever they try to get out, they were just shouted back. They were just, you know, you cannot even uh, get out to have some fresh air. So that was really hard, I think. But on the other hand, they were in a way, taken good care of. So the committee, they sent volunteers to purchase stuff, the necessities uh, for my mother, for uh, the family. And uh, Mm. maybe not just a community, they they call it communal committees, but also uh, there is a department in charge of the retirees uh, at this university. So there's just one person, kind of a contact, uh, who is in charge of you know, uh, purchasing all the necessities for my mother. So in that sense, uh, uh, she was taken good care of. And I think it's very hard for any other society to maybe so-called, they use this phrase, copy the Chinese homework, because you really need to mobilize uh, lots and lots of people to do this. And you also have uh, to have this, you know, almost like top-down organization system to actually make it work. So that's not easy. So, I, you know, in my piece, I also said that, you know, my mother actually, and my, my mother and the caretaker, they were the lucky ones. For those family and, you know, families who lost their loved ones during this disaster, it was, you know, Wuhan was a hellish place. Uh, the, yeah. the, the hospitals were overwhelmed by the patients. They don't have the capacity. And it was happening so sudden. So nobody was seeing that. And nobody was 
really understanding what's going on. So it was very chaotic, I think, terrifying and chaotic. And that was captured on uh, people's cell phones that we were able to see. And I couldn't make my mother see all of this. And I didn't want her to see. So I, I kind of was a little bit overprotective in that sense. But right. it was it was well, I don't blame harrowing uh, experience. I was I was I mean, crying. What good would it have done for her to see that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so and compared with you know I I shouldn't say this, but when my father passed away in 2011, uh, nine years ago, I was suddenly caught back, and the entire experience of dealing with him falling into coma uh, in a hospital, but that was the peacetime. Although it was really very, I mean, emotionally, it was difficult, but, you know, it was so much better, I could imagine, uh, than those right. who were losing their loved ones. Basically, some people just dropped dead at a, at a door, at a gate, I heard. Um, Jiwen, let's talk about the writer Wang Feng, or uh, as her um, pen name is, uh, Feng Feng, mm-hmm. uh, who is kind of an establishment writer, but um, interestingly enough, um, she chronicled life uh, in her Wuhan diary mm-hmm. uh, and was critical of some of the aspects of the initial handling of the epidemic yes. in China. Uh but she's received a lot of criticism, um, some of which uh, you wrote about in your essay. Um, who is she and what did she say that was so controversial? So um, I just want to say a few things. One is Wang, uh, Wang Fang or Fang Fang. Uh, she did not get famous overnight because of uh, the quarantine diary or Wuhan diary. She was uh, already famous in the in the 1980s uh and she of course as you mentioned that she was in the system uh, she, i think she, in one year i don't i don't have the exact figure she was elected the president of the hubei province writers association so she right, was she was in the system uh but you know she also wrote novels that was really you know almost like a taboo subjects for example uh, a novel that was published in 2016 uh, the chinese title is ran mai uh, i don't know how to how best to translate that title basically it means a person was buried uh, without a coffin just right into the earth and that novel got her really into, I mean, trouble. On the day, okay, her novel won a literary award, which is not an official literary award. Uh, there was a struggle meeting. I don't know if you are, are aware of this uh, particular term, uh, this campaign uh-huh. against her and against this novel, which is uh, set in, uh, which had, I, I shouldn't say setting, which has this uh, land reform as the backdrop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So pe- people were angry. I mean, this particular group of people, and uh, many of them are party loyalists and ultra-leftists, they were angry about her. 
and they call her by all kinds of names and uh, uh, the harsh language that you, they used to criticize her uh, was very similar to the language that people and these party loyalists and ultra leftists are using now to criticize her. Yeah. And it's I'm also. I'm sure it's a lot of the same people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the rhetorics just reminded us, I mean, the people who are not involved in this, uh, of the language that people used during the Cultural Revolution. Right. Uh, it was shameful uh, that, you know, after so many years, that people are still using that kind of language to, to criticize someone who is speaking for so many ordinary people uh, who had suffered during this tragedy. And this is a trauma. This is a national trauma. And there should be many, many voices. But unfortunately, we have this singular and very courageous voice. And even that, and I mean, she was not very harsh, actually. I read most of her diary entries. And I don't think she was that harsh even. She was also praising you know, the heroism that was happening in, in, in Wuhan. So it was not kind of uh, as they described, like, you know, she was right. a traitor of China uh, and she was uh, the class enemy and she was giving the weapon to the foreigners to, uh, to damage, to smear China. So all these accusations are reminding me of the same language that many people are were using in the Cultural Revolution. And I think Fang Fang was very clear about who his her enemies are. And we also knew who these people are. Sounds like people talking about Jeremy. Not hard enough on China. <laughs> too hard on China. <laughs> yeah. You know, a friend of ours, though, a, a China scholar who will remain nameless here, uh, actually wrote a note to both Jeremy and to me lamenting about how Fang Fang has been given so much attention for uh, because of these attacks against her by these, you know, these new red guard types. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but he wrote, you know, he said the beat up you know, on, on her mm-hmm. will mean that international readers will expect that Fong's pathetic diary will be a modern day gulag archipelago. F- hell. This particular scholar went after her, obviously not just for being what he thought was not good literature, but but it seems just for, for making it seem that you know, if this is all there is to complain about in, in in the government's response, then maybe they've not really been doing such a bad job after all. Right. <laughs> I I think the uh, criticizing her for not being literary enough or producing uh, quality literature is is kind of ridiculous to me. I think uh, mm-hmm. I have to say because uh, if if we you know we all know that there is a different kind of literature uh, in this crisis time, right? There is documentary. I, I consider her diary as a kind of documentary uh, for the, yeah. I mean, even for the sole purpose of bearing witness, I think it has a tremendous value. And it's not just her diary. Uh, every night, midnight, her diary came out, posted online. Uh, you know, uh, there there's this long story. I think some of your listeners probably are already aware that her diary entries were just being deleted numerous times. But then there is this huge base of masses, I mean, the, the readers who are waiting for this daily post to come out. They waited. And some people... So they can screen capture and retweet. Yeah. And, right, right. and you know, yeah, exactly. when I was 
on WeChat and reading all these、uh, responses, I it was heartbreaking, but also comforting. You see all these ordinary people leaving these messages, supporting her. Most I think are supportive, and telling her that you should go on and you are speaking what we. Uh, cannot say so. You are our voice. You are our conscience, basically. And you know, they. I think it's because of these people she could go on and she could fight this battle. And I think at the end of her diary, you can see that、uh, it's almost like you know, I'm have the privilege of speaking for these people.、Um, I think it's important.、Yeah. And also, I, can I add about literature part because I'm a literary critic, and I want to make my position entirely、uh, clear. That is,、uh, I I read Fang Fang's novels in the past. I have to admit, I'm not a huge fan of her particular style of writing because I always wanted、mm. something not just realistic. I, I want something more. I feel like there is a shortage of that in some of her. Stories and novels. I I didn't read all of her novels, so I cannot say that I'm an authoritative, critic critic on her work.、Uh, but I think you know she is you know she's just so admirable to to do this. And one of the critic, I think,、uh, he said something that's really interesting. He said, for decades, for almost a hundred years. Modern Chinese writers, you know, they were looking for this kind of literature that can appeal to the masses, yeah, the the people, the ordinary people, and they couldn't do it.、Mm-hmm. They they could not produce that kind of literature. And she kind of realized their dream of reaching out to these people.、Um, and and of course you 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 also can see that this is. Uh, enabled by WeChat, which、uh, we can talk about later,、um, and we will. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably not going to convince our sinologist friend Kaiser. But、uh, <laughs> no. if we can、uh, talk a little bit more about the literature of disease and pandemic,、uh, Jiwei,、mm-hmm. um, is there an emerging literature of the pandemic in China?、Um, I am not aware of that. I have a different view about、uh, this. I think we should not. I mean, I I shouldn't use word should, but for me, I think literature needs time,、uh, needs a gap of time between the event and the writing. I think we.、Uh, Many、But、writers. No, no, no. What about what about Daniel Defoe and the what is it called? The plague? Yeah, wasn't that written immediately after the plague? But, yeah, but yeah, but for me, I think you you do need some time to reflect on what happened and sort out things.、Uh, I think there is. I'm. I wouldn't be surprised that we will have something great literature coming out of this, maybe in a few years.、Um, Yeah,、mm. but that's just my opinion. So, Jiwei, when did it occur to you that you should write something about your experience, and、ah. how were you able to land that piece in a publication like the New York Review of Books, which is notably snooty? <laughs> <laughs>、uh, inter- I mean,、uh, I can tell you the the my story, which is not actually a story. I submitted、um, my piece on a film, which is called、uh, "The White Goose Lake," 
is a new film.、Um, so I wrote this film review and I sent it to this editor.、Um, it's a long review and he asked me、uh, to make it short. So I I did it. So I did everything he asked, and I guess he liked it all right. He liked it,、uh, and then in ten days he turned back and asked me if I could write a different kind of、uh, a piece for them.、Uh, if I could write a personal essay, I thought about it at first. I I was hesitant because you know I've never written any non-academic、uh, stuff. I've never published anything like personal essay, you know, not even in Chinese.、Uh, so I said, but then I thought, you know, I did have lots of things to say, I guess. I and I was、uh, feeling things, and I do want to speak not just for myself, but also for people like me.、Um, I, for the first time, I have to tell you, in this crisis.、Um, I feel the power of, you know, the collectivity,、uh, of the power of being in a group.、Um, I'm a very, I think I'm a individualist, and I don't care about being in a group. But this time, I feel like if I could say something, if I have an opportunity, I should. So I told him that why not?、Uh, I could give it a try. I told him frankly, I've never written any personal essay, so it was an invitation. Well, I, th- I think you've succeeded very, very well. Thank、uh, you. But not everybody was writing, you know, really good sort of reflective、uh, pieces on this. Not, not everyone was starting a, a, a the plague year novel or even a lockdown diary. But I think a lot of people were composing Weibo posts or、uh, little essays for WeChat,、uh, like many of us who read Chinese and, and are on Weixin here in in the U.S. We were just deluged. You mentioned this earlier, you know, about the videos from、mm-hmm. uh, from the actual surgery rooms and, and things like that. Commentary with a lot of angry posts, and、mm-hmm. also a lot of really stridently patriotic ones, and some that were really, you know, very emotionally moving.、Mm-hmm. Uh, in the days and weeks after the lockdown began、uh, on January twenty third, how, how did you process what was happening in Wuhan? I mean, what did you make of this whole public conversation around the virus and the government? You talked a little bit about that, but.、Um, Yeah, watching from the U.S., it, it it was just striking to me how divided people were—not united,、mm-hmm. but a lot of them were so very divided.、Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah,、um, what was your sense of that? I I don't want to sound solipsistic, right?、Uh, all about myself, but this actually I can、uh, relate this to, you know,、uh, how I write about this.、Uh, I. When I was taking on this job, I realized how difficult it is, precisely because of the reasons you you just said. You know, people have so many different opinions, and people are arguing with each other. And there are so many aspects, so many angles and perspectives. So how do you even、uh, write about something also that is still evolving?、Uh, so it's it's a very challenging part. But I think I can only, you know, sound true if I write from my own experience and from how I feel.、Uh, but on the other hand, I have to connect myself with a group. So what I did is、yeah. uh, I start with a personal story,、uh, and then I also set up a group of, you know, people who have、uh, the immigrant background, 
who are witnessing this whole thing uh, from, you know, both of their identities, being a Chinese and American. And they witness what happened in Wuhan, in China. And then now they're dealing with what's happening in America. So I choose uh, 37 people in my WeChat group. And that's actually both the number of people I want to put there. And also I was limited. Uh, I was forbidden to uh, actually set up a larger group for some reason. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, so I set up this group and I throw all kinds of questions to them. And some of them, I said, you don't have to uh, share what you feel online. I mean, in a group, you can just uh, email me or uh, chat with me uh, offline. Yeah. So many yeah. of them did that. Uh, all these friends tell me their stories and I was able to incorporate uh, their views and their stories. So in certain parts of my essay, I used uh, the plural pronoun, we, uh, which means that you know some of the things that I talked about didn't happen to me personally, but that was happening to my friend and friend's friend. Hmm. And yeah, that's I, I, I thought that's the only way that you can both write about yourself with a true voice and also uh, not losing the larger picture, uh, not losing other people's uh, viewpoints. So uh, I think that's a, a, a good time to ask you, Jiwei, about your arrival in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how and when you arrived and under what circumstances you found yourself in the United States? Mm-hmm. Um Two parts. I, I mentioned my father, actually, you know, the idea of coming to the U.S. Uh, to seek, uh, a, you know, advanced studies and then possibly a career was, I mean, that, that was planted. The seeds were planted by my father uh, because of his own experience, you know, after, because, you know, he was the older generation who was sent to Europe to study uh, education and then French literature, uh, philosophy. Uh, so he went to Switzerland and then later Paris. But after he came back uh, in, a 90, in 1951, 50, uh, he felt like he was put into a cage. He could not go hmm. out again. So that sense of being in prison, uh, being a cage, and later on during the Cultural Revolution, of course, you can imagine people with his background uh, was not having a very happy life, right? Uh, that So I grew up with his memory. I grew up with his grievance. I grew up with his hope. So that was actually part of, because of him, I think. But I was also an English major. Um, I guess that gives me the skills to, to, to find a way to apply to graduate schools. But I came to the U.S., uh, first of all, not because I applied to graduate school at a time. It was because my husband came to the U.S. to study biochemistry. Uh, so he, mm. he came here first in 1996, and I followed him. Uh, and then the following year, after I took a class in Rutgers, because that was co- close to where my husband was at a time, uh, I took a graduate class with uh, Dr. Josephine Diamond, who um, who is really in, in Chinese. I can call her Enshi. Uh, 
uh, I, I'm forever grateful to her. Hmm. Um, and he, she, um, she helped me win this uh, 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 graduate fellowship. So I was able to study comparative literature at Rutgers University. So that oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Oh, that's so Just now, you were talking about um, you know this this we this group of people that you you put together, and I think they have a lot in common. A lot of my Chinese friends here in the U.S., especially you know, academics like you, have pretty similar stories. They all occupy, I think, the same space. And it's one that's very interesting to me. People who are quite bicultural, very fluent in English, still frequently traveling to China, but also assimilated in a lot of ways. Um, it's it's very different from ABCs like me or people who have maybe come more recently. For, uh, for one, I think their views on American politics seem to be very different from people like you who came, you know, uh, 20 years ago or so, 25 years ago. Maybe dig in a little bit. How would you describe this zone that you occupy, this we, this plural that you use mm-hmm. in this piece? How, what are these people like you? I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this group. Thank you for asking me this question, actually. Um, the original title of my essay is called The, the Invisibles. Uh, I, I think using the invisible, I could uh, cover lots of ground, right? Uh, uh, so the pathogen is invisible, but us, we are also invisible. I feel like that um, for many years and I'm still feeling that. Uh, we are in between the two cultures, uh, between two nations. And I can also tell you another layer of uh, being in between and being invisible is uh, the, the sense of ruthlessness almost. Uh, yeah, I yeah. I'm commuting uh, between two states, between two homes, and uh, sometimes I don't feel like I belong to anywhere. Um, I could only, you know, take comfort in listening to a radio show where you where I hear this, you know, very big famous Shakespeare actor talking about his feeling of alienation in his own country. So I thought to myself, this is universal. This is not just me. And, uh, but, mm-hmm. but there is uh, something specific about this. We, you know, we, my friends, um, many of my Chinese friends are having, I mean, they have similar background like us who came from China and got a PhD or advanced degree here and settled down here. And they don't really have family to fall back upon, uh, especially during holidays. We don't have anywhere to go, but we can get together uh, like a family. I guess our friends are our families. So we do have a strong sense of community in that sense. And uh, yeah, that's, that's both a happy and very sad story of not belonging to anywhere. I very much empathize here. I think in my essay, I talked about um, the sense of community. Um, and because of this crisis, uh, I realized that we should voice our concerns about this xenophobia. But we also should uh, assimilate more into our local community to consolidate our ties with them. Uh, Just now I told you because, I mean, again, from my own experience, if you live between in in this between space, it's actually very hard for you to strike roots, uh, to communicate 
or to assimilate into your local community. But because of this crisis, mm. I think we should do more. And, um, and we are doing more. Uh, the donations, the, you know, the, how, um, how we could connect with each other and do something really helpful to our local hospitals and local communities, that gives us a sense of belonging. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's happening all over, yeah. all over the country. I'm seeing that happen all over. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah, that's right. But I also know that uh, 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 Andrew Young wrote an op-ed and uh, it got <sighs> attacked on Twitter because people complained, why do we have to make donations to confirm our American identity? I think there, there, there were some controversies, right? So I, I right, but the, the, he was talking about more than just making donations. He was really talking about draping ourselves in the American flag. I mean, and that was, <laughs> I, I, I think that, that, that people who understand the whole discourse uh, on, for example, uh, loyalty oaths, uh, loyalty pledges that were demanded of Japanese uh, after they were rounded up and, and placed in uh, internment camps after Pearl Harbor. Uh, we understand how how loaded that is, and I, I wish that Andrew Young had, you know, taken a, a, maybe a, an Asian American studies class <laughs> when he was younger. Jiwei, when when I talk to a lot of my friends in the U.S. who have close ties to China, who have lived in China, who grew up there, who have a lot of family there, um, my sense is that our experience of this whole thing is very different than people who don't have China connections. And I think that's kind of what was at the heart of your essay. Um, and it's what really grabbed me. I, I, I don't think I've seen, I've seen anywhere that kind of double experience of this thing articulated in a way that quite resonated as much. Um, was it, what was it like? It was, was it like sort of experiencing the shock twice? Is that, is that a fair characterization? Definitely. Uh, and I think at first uh, we also, you know, um, laughed at ourselves. There was this very popular joke that is uh, the Chinese are playing the match for the first half and then the Americans are playing the second half and the Asian Americans or Chinese Americans are playing the whole game or the whole match. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's right. It's more exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's very exhausting. So I think we are probably a little bit more aware of the you know, the global reach of this uh, pathogen a little bit earlier because we are, you know, constantly, constantly talking with our friends. I mean, in we- on WeChat, it's just, you know, constant. And we, we are aware of that. And uh, we also laughed at ourselves before everything goes really, um, you know, downhill. And we said, oh, it's just us who constantly talk about this so why nobody else was i mean my colleagues and friends they were not paying attention to what's going on there uh, they you know it's just a newspaper headline but right but only exactly. when it comes to your door uh, people are starting to die i mean maybe italy uh, really hits people like you know wake wake people even, up even that just seemed yeah even that seemed like it was still distant it was weird yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's it's funny. I I remember washing my hands feverishly in late January at the sub China offices in New York, 
and kind of being laughed at by somebody at the WeWork office that we occupy. Um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, Who's laughing now? Yeah. And, um, yeah, people were also talking about because of this anxiety, because, you know, you were constantly reminded of what's going on in Wuhan, in China. So lots of the Asian Americans and Chinese Americans here are very careful. I think they're more careful than many other people, I have to say. Oh, yeah. And they absolutely. wear masks. Uh, so they were stared at, of course, they were glared at. But they still, you know, they're, they're very careful. I think that's um, probably helped them. Yeah. So, Jiwei, pretty early into this, uh, I think a lot of us who uh, watch China... Um, and were often critical of the initial response of the Chinese government, felt the same thing you did. Uh, you wrote, it was especially painful for me and my friends, some of whom themselves work in healthcare and hospitals, to see the American authorities repeat their Chinese counterparts' tendency to dawdle, to deny, to feign a semblance of normalcy. Mm -hmm. all of which in China had contributed to the disastrous havoc that convulsed Wuhan when the outbreak of the coronavirus began there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it seemed like the U.S. was learning all of the wrong lessons, repeating what China had done wrong and not doing what China had done right. Uh, what accounted for this, do you think? You know, what accounted for the slow U.S. response? Um, I talked about this othering of uh, the virus, right? We think that, again, back to what we just talked about, they were thinking, and as our president said, it is a Ch Chinese virus. Of, of course, uh, he has some political motive uh, behind saying that. But, you know, sure does. <laughs> but psychologically speaking, it was true. They really think that, you know, this virus has an ethnicity, which is ridiculous, right? This this is a, a, a pandemic and epidemic. Uh, it's global. Uh, but then they, if you uh, connect or associate an epidemic with a particular place, then you also psychologically let your guards down. You think that this is happening in elsewhere, right? In Wuhan. I don't even know where Wuhan is on the map, they will think. So I think this really didn't help. Americans to be prepared to be more alert uh, to to think that Wuhan is not just Wuhan in a corner somewhere. Um, so and and I didn't see I don't know uh, media didn't really do enough maybe talk about you know what this city is like and maybe potential danger it poses. You know, having right. this 11 million urbanized citizens and also, you know, increasingly wealthy, which means that, you know, their footprints are everywhere. And there are, they travel, you know, yeah. they travel. So the pathogens right. travel with people. So, you know, it, it, so it, yeah. This othering has escalated into, you know, flat out racism toward East Asian people, which has just increased to nobody's surprise, given, you know, what we've seen before in this country. Uh, most of us have probably, you know, at least heard at second hand, if not first hand, about verbal abuse, about this, you know, go back to China, the racial epithets, and and many of us have certainly read about these incidences of violence. Uh, so far, luckily, nobody's been killed. But 
I mean, at the beginning of this, I was naively asking myself, you know, what's worse, the, the pathogen or the panic? Now I'm kind of asking, you know, what's worse, the pandemic or the prejudice? So mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, how is this being discussed among, you know, Chinese in the U.S. on WeChat and other platforms? Because frankly, I've seen the the strangest phenomenon, which is a lot of Trump supporters who are themselves Chinese defending his use of Chinese virus and in fact I mean just just weirdly like assuming that somehow the guy who's about to throw a rock at you is going to stop and ask well, about your posture uh, towards Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party before you know <laughs> it's just yeah. really strange yeah it, it is um, um, so I don't know how what can you say how to exactly answer that question but um, you know I don't have many friends who are uh, the Trumpeters or Trump supporters. So, and I have to say, they, I mean, maybe a few, they remain my friends. I feel like they can compartmentalize their political views from their life. And that also kind of uh, is a little bit puzzling because they, you know, from the very beginning, we had this big argument, I have to tell you, uh, in this WeChat group that I was in. Um, we had this huge argument about, you know, the candidacy of our president and argument. And um, it was very unhappy, of course. And later yeah. on, when uh, Trump turned towards China, criticized, criticized China, started a, a trade war with China, and these people, I don't know, it's it's very hard for I mean they they were still very emotionally sympathetic to China, but on the other hand they were Trump Trump supporters. So you can see right. they are also divided in in that way. Um, I, I guess I'm gonna have to at some point interview somebody like that. And <laughs> yeah. So Jiwei, one one of the big topics on WeChat, at least judging from my social feeds in recent weeks has been the students who've returned to China from the U.S. and uh, other countries. And their reception hasn't been exactly uh, warm uh, in certain quarters. Can you talk about that? I have limited knowledge about that, but I did ask um, some of my friends, and one person actually left a long message uh, and also some photo illustration that showed the Chinese government, at least, you know, this is happening in Shenzhen and Guangzhou, the southern cities in China. They were actually treated pretty well uh, for the overseas, I mean, returnees. Uh, so I I can't say for certain that, you know, um, you know, this maybe some some bad things happened, some incidents happened, but, you know, I have limited sources of information. And according to this friend, uh, the family were, I mean, the, all the pictures show that they were treated pretty nicely. And another observation of this friend is that he said some of the students were complaining and he was shocked at uh, why they even complained about it. Because, you know, everybody has to wait. So, uh, just a little bit more patience and cooperation would get you out of the situation. So, I, I mean, I think he... I need to make friends with your friends and go live in your bubble. I mean, that sounds yeah. a lot more pleasant than the one I made. Yeah. 
So uh, I, I can't uh, say. Um, yeah. Okay, 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 but uh, on a, a related uh, topic, um, one of the worries over the second wave of infections has touched off really a wave of xenophobia, as I'm sure you've read about. Mm -hmm. There have been hateful comics passed around about like Yang Laji, foreign trash, sorting mm -hmm. foreign trash into different kinds of categories, signs basically saying they're refusing to serve foreigners, hotels not allowing foreign guests, and perhaps most extremely what's been happening in Guangzhou to the African residents there who have been very clearly and well in a well you know it's been well documented have been targeted have been evicted forced to sleep in the streets um forced to uh be tested for covid 19 in a way that other foreigners haven't um what's your take on all of this uh, i was alerted to this problem um from a friend in australia actually uh, he wrote to me, of course, first praising my essay, and then he asked me, are you aware of that? So I think the uh, implication, I, I also see on the Twitter, uh, some feeds, uh, some Twitter feeds said that, you know, you're complaining about the xenophobia in America. But what about, uh, what about, you know, xenophobia, the uh, discrimination, the prejudice against Africans in China. Um, my defense would be, you know, one bad thing cannot justify another. Uh, exactly. it's, There's it's, that word, what about, right? Yeah, the what about. Uh, so I think it's it's really very sad that, you know, this kind of blatant uh, xenophobic behavior was there, uh, happening there, and affecting so many uh, African uh, people. But I, I don't know. Uh, things are still evolving, and I don't know uh, the entire picture. And uh, I, I strongly condemn this kind of, you know, uh, discrimination. And mm -hmm. I have to say, race China is not a very easy country, probably for African, um, you know, Africans to to live. That's my just my indeed. It is not. Yeah, it is not. Um, people do have very strong um, racism. Uh, sometimes I yeah, think absolutely. just like in American, America, um, often it was hidden. But when certain things like this coronavirus strike, uh, all these hidden hatred, prejudice and racism just came out. Um, it's very unfortunate. It's a Jiwei, uh, finally, before we go to, to, to um, recommendations, give us an update on your mother and on, on Wuhan. Um, how is she now, and, and how are people in Wuhan uh, processing the whole reopening of the city right now? Um, I, I can just say my mother is doing well, and uh, she's fine. But she told me, and also this is confirmed by some of my friends there, they said, yeah, people, you know, not in Wuda, probably in the downtown area of Wuhan, they can go out, but you know they're so afraid of uh, catching the disease, so they still spend most of their time indoor. And as yeah. to my mother, I, I think I, you know, she told me that she still couldn't go out, so things are still just you know the the lifting of this lockdown. I think it will take time, uh, but I think. It's not just a 
you know, the policy. It's how people will process this thing and how people will, you know, think about their future. It's it's really hard psychologically speaking how they face this new life after coronavirus. Yeah, and uh, take care of themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a story to watch for a long time. Still. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, Ji Wei Xiao, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it's just been a real pleasure. Um, and I think there's a lot of, of issues I still want to explore with you, uh, especially about that that community of yours and that those invisibles. I think. Um, thank you. Something I really want to to talk more about. Thank you so much. Anyway, um, it's. It's, it's great to have you on. Let's move on to recommendations. But first, let me remind listeners quickly that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca, the single best way you can support us is by signing up for SubChina Access, our premium membership, which gets you the daily email newsletter that Jeremy and his team put together each day, along with early access to this podcast and a lot of other perks. So help us to continue doing the work that we're doing and become a SubChina Access member today. Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you start us off? What you got for us? Okay, because I, I think Jiwei is going to uh, recommend films, or m- might do. Um, I'm going to first recommend a film that uh, my wife and I have been watching with a great deal of joy recently and nostalgia for the 1990s, which is Zhang Yimou's coolest film ever, uh, Keep Cool or uh, your hua ha ha shua, which if you know Beijing in the 90s is just like the most wonderful nostalgia trip. And uh, I really think it's his best work. That's <laughs> yeah, a great one. Um, you know, I, I, I need to revisit that one. Uh, but, you know, we have with us a real cineast here, a real film enthusiast, and she's going to make some recommendations on films. Jiwei, what do you have for us, film-wise? <laughs> yeah, uh, I would recommend a film by a director who is less known probably by uh, most Americans, and his name is Diao Yinan. The last name is D-I-A-O. Uh, and this latest film is called White Goose Lake. It is a thriller, but it also has Wuhan in there. Also, uh, it's it's you can call it Wuhan noir, uh, China noir. Um, you know, I I really like the film that is not just social criticism, but something interesting, uh, and it has all of it. Uh, and when I meet this uh, director, I thought, oh, this guy is a scholar and he's very intellectual. But if you watch his film, his film has this rawness, this energy and, you know, this mystery. So it has everything and it has criticism, uh, social criticism. And he, ha- you know, he's influenced by the new French wave and I- Italian new realism and the world cinema he is uh just fantastic and i highly recommend this new film and it's going to lake white goose lake and again uh talking about wuhan uh he said he chose wuhan as the backdrop for this uh uh, film is because of the lakes and this uncharted zone and if you see the film you will understand what this uncharted zone is but uncharted zone could be the title that encapsulate, you know, uh, what we are feeling now, this very dark and uncharted zone that we're, we're entering. 
So I, I want to recommend two other filmmakers. One is the Tibetan filmmaker uh, Pema Tseten, and his new film is called Jingpa. And that film shows you a Tibet that is just, you know, totally out of your imagination and uh, uh, a killer, a dream, uh, a killer in the dream. So I encourage you to, you know, uh, watch his film. It's really interesting. And the other, uh, the last uh, filmmaker I want to recommend is uh, Bi Gan, the young filmmaker. Uh, the first, his very first film is called Cali Blues. Uh, it's an amazing film. No matter how many times I watch this film, there's always some detail that puzzles me. But, you know, it just makes me want to explore more. And that's also the difference between mystery and suspense. Fantastic. I'm, I think that movie recommendations are so important right now during uh, the lockdown we're all going through. Um, that's a great recommendation. Thank you so much. I'm going to recommend uh, a piece that I just read this it's really excellent, a uh, long-form piece by uh, Helen Ouyang, who is an emergency room doctor who's based in New York City. Uh, and her frontline firsthand account is just gripping. It's in the New York Times Magazine. The piece is called, I'm an ER doctor in New York. None of us will ever be the same. It's, a, 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 like I said, a pretty you know hefty, long, long piece, gut-wrenching, but take the time read it it's it's she's she's quite a gifted writer and it's you know it's a real emotional punch to the gut it's great Wei, thank you once again it was just really great to have you on thank you thank you for having me yeah and i would look forward to reading more of your writing uh jeremy as always man it was fun yeah we'll talk to you soon oh yeah the cynical podcast is powered by subchina and is a proud part of the Seneca network our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>